regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi everyone, welcome to a new episode of Datacast, and today I have the pleasure to be on a call with David Sweet. David was a quantitative trader at Gatco, where he used experimental methods to tune trading strategy. Uh, he was also a machining engineer at Instagram, where he experimented on a large-scale recommended system. He is currently writing a book called Tuning Up, which is an extension of lectures given at NYU Stern on the topic of tuning high-frequency trading system. Before working in the industry, he received a PhD in physics and has published research in physical review letters and nature. The latter publication, which is an experiment demonstrating chaos in geometrical optics, has become a source of inspiration for computer graphics artists, undergrad physics instructor, and even an exhibit called Tetrasphere at the Museum of Mathematics in New York City. So David, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, James. By way of introduction, you studied physics and math at Duke University back in the early 90s for your undergrad. How was your college experience at Duke? I had a great experience. I arrived my freshman year on a year when they won the NCAA championship. And Duke, um, I don't know if you know, but has a lot of school spirit. So it was insanely jubilant <laughs> after we won. One of the, the ways Duke people celebrated at the time was to take all the benches off the main quad and throw them into a bonfire and, and celebrate around those bonfire benches. So I got to participate in that my first year. It was kind of lucky because Duke doesn't win every year. And uh, <laughs> so uh, one of the things about Duke is it has a really strong on-campus social life. I sort of attributed this to the fact that it's surrounded by a forest and it's just hard to get off campus and do other things. I know that different schools, different ways, you know, different students have different ways of socializing, but you know, this was great uh, for me. This worked well for me. One of the other things that was great about going to Duke was I got to learn about North Carolina barbecue. <laughs> now, coming from the Northeast, when I first heard someone say we're having barbecue, it was a little confusing because in the Northeast, we have a barbecue, barbecue's the event. In North Carolina, barbecue is the food and it's pulled pork and hush puppies and it's fantastic and uh, they eat it whenever they can. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, I studied physics and math there. I got a you know bachelor's, a BS and BA in, the, in those two subjects. And one of the nice things about Duke is that there's opportunity to do things beyond your classes. And that is probably typical of, of universities, but I was you know thankful to have these opportunities. I did um, an independent study with Richard Palmer, and this was a, a long time ago. We were studying neural networks and reinforcement learning, which kind of become popular topics again. But back then they were, they were new. The temporal difference learning and Q learning were, were fairly new things. And so he was showing me fairly recent papers on the introduction of these topics. And I also had the chance to work with the professor, Bernd Maven, over the summer running simulations of PDEs for him. You know, the physics at the time was a little above my head, but I could do the computation work. And he included me as co-author on the paper that resulted from this work. So that was kind of him as a great opportunity for him to graduate. Fantastic. Just out of curiosity, like, have you always been interested in like physics and math growing up? Why did you decide to study those subjects? 
That's a good question. The answer is yes, but I think maybe as a middle schooler, high schooler, I was more interested naturally in computer science simply because we had a computer that was accessible and I could do this. We didn't have really physics experiments available. You know, these, these are expensive things, but I was interested in physics. I had like a lot of people uh, my age, I had read A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking and was absolutely fascinated. I love this. A gentleman that I worked for in a local video store in my town, he was an organic chemist, he worked for General Foods for many years. And this was like kind of his retirement job was to run this video store. And his advice was, there are going to be a lot more computer scientists in the world uh, than physicists when you grow up. Do physics. You like it, even if you don't know as much about it as you do uh, you know, computer programming at this point, and see what comes of it. I, th- I took that advice, and I'm glad I did. It's a, it was just a, a great time under, through undergrad and graduate and everything. So. What is like, your favorite undergrad-level physics course in, in Duke? Oh, um, that's a good question. The one that pops to mind was a seminar in general relativity. Mm-hmm. One, because it's, it's just a, a fascinating topic. The two, it's hard. It's hard to grasp. You really have to work and think it through. But in a group, under the professor there, you, you kind of get through it. So it's rewarding in that kind of intellectual sense. But also, I think it was, it was in a seminar format. We had a lot of discussion, a lot of group discussion that was going on. It was a good social experience. It was a really like this nice combination of intellectual and social interaction. You don't know what get in class when there's a, just a lecture with the students listening, which is fine, but the, you know, this was a nice change of pace. I see. Yeah. Thanks for sharing those experience. After you finished your undergrad at Duke from 1995 to 2000, you pursued your PhD in physics at the University of Maryland in College Park, specializing in nonlinear dynamics and chaos theory. Well, first of all, like, why did you decide to pursue a doctorate? And second of all, like, could you just explain chaos theory for the uninitiated? Sure. As far as pursuing a doctorate, for me, the question at the time would have been, why not pursue a doctorate? I you know, enjoyed the subject and there was more to learn. For me, that was the default situation. It, it, was, it was as natural as going from you know, freshman to sophomore year, sophomore to junior and so on. But you know, I'd like to give a better reason, but really that was, I didn't, I never gave it a second thought. So, so chaos theory, this was an interesting uh, topic. This was something that was popular in the 1980s. In popular media, you'd see fractals, which are these images that kind of are, that are associated with chaotic systems and Chaos was in uh, featured in Jurassic Park. Jeff Goldman, I guess, talked about chaos in there a little bit. So the defining characteristic of chaotic system or chaotic dynamical system is usually expressed as sensitive dependence on initial conditions. And so what that means is if you take a chaotic system, and it kind of helps to have an example. Imagine you take a steel rod and you hang it from the wall by its end so that it can spin around in a circle. We'll call that a pendulum. Now you take another steel rod the same size and you hang it from its end, but at the unattached end of the other rod. Now you have something called a double pendulum. This behaves in strange, irregular ways. You might not be able to imagine it, but if you stimulate this system by lifting it up and just letting it fall under gravity, it'll spin and do loop-de-loops and make all these erratic behaviors. But what I can describe to you is, I can't show it to you, but I can describe to you is the sort of the feeling of observing the system. It's kind of like you see it and you almost think you can predict what's going to happen next, but then you're surprised. And this happens over and over until you, you know, just sort of give up on trying to predict, but that's the, that's the experience of this. And what that translates into in physical, in more, like more precise physical terms, I think is imagine if you have two of these next to each other and you start them both with, uh, let's say both of the rods pointed straight up. Now to your eye, they look like they're set up exactly the same way. But once you let them go, 
maybe for a moment or two, they'll behave the same way, but eventually their behaviors will look completely different. So what's happening is those initial conditions where you started the system, they might've looked the same to you, but there could be slight discrepancies. And in any realistic setup, there will be slight discrepancies. And those, those discrepancies between the two identical otherwise identical systems will grow exponentially, like explosively. So in any finite amount of time, you'll observe the difference no matter how infinitesimal it was when you started. But the behavior of the system itself is bounded. So the system isn't exploding and the, the rods aren't flying off the wall, just the difference between the two different behaviors. And so this is what defines static systems. This like is what sensitive dependence on initial conditions is. Like the, if you start out in very similar situations, very si similar initial conditions, very quickly, the behaviors will diverge. But the key point is this is not it's not because there's noise, not because the wall is shaking a little bit or the wind is blowing. The system is completely determinist and yet it exhibits this behavior. That's what makes these systems interesting. Thanks for vividly describing it. I guess like in the physics realm, is it like a problem that has been studied extensively before? What do you think this is a good dissertation topic for your PhD? Oh, what did I think was a good topic from PhD? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So at that point, lots of work had been done on systems with few degrees of freedom. Systems mm -hmm. that can be represented by a, in physics, we like to talk about a state space. If you think about it in a physical system, you can describe it by variables like position and momentum. Like if you had the pendulum on the wall, you might, you know, the angle where the, the rod lies and the, the angular velocity, this would be state space variables. And you can do that with any, any physical system you're interested in. So a lot of work had been done studying systems with a few variables like this, mm -hmm. because the, the computers in the eighties and the early nineties were capable of doing the simulations to study them. It's hard to do analytical work with these kinds of systems. You usually do a little bit of analysis and then a bunch of computation to kind of support it. But computers were getting faster. And so we were moving into higher dimensional systems. So I, I studied like higher dimensional versions, cognates of lower dimensional results. And we'll talk about some of that research work later on in that chat. Before that, early in your PhD, you were the first author of a nature paper called topology in chaotic scattering. I believe like in the bio, you know, we, we could talk about how that work later on being transferred into various real world exhibits. Can you explain the experimental settings for this paper? Sure. Uh, so this was called a geometrical optics experiment, meaning it's a study of light rays bouncing off of mirrors. If you imagine you've got a 12 inch diameter sphere mirrored on the outside, right? You can set it down on the table in front of you. And I'll get two more and place them next to the first sphere. So all three of them are uniformly touching. Each of the spheres is touching the other two spheres. And I'll stack on top of that a fourth sphere, right? So they're stacked kind of like cannonballs. That description I owe to my friend Aaron Nielsen, and I think it's evocative. It's a good way to imagine it. So these four spheres are stacked like cannonballs. The centers of the sphere are on the vertices of a tetrahedron or pyramid. So if that, if that helps imagine it. And so... What we did was went to it, took this apparatus into a dark room, into a, the lab of a professor, Dan Lathrop, who's part of our group. And on three of the four faces of that pyramid, if you can imagine a face being the triangle connecting the centers of three of the spheres, there would be four faces. There'd be sort of the far left, the far right, the bottom, and then a face right in front of you. Now, now the face right in front of us we left open to the dark room the other three faces we put in front of them we placed colored poster board and shown lights on the poster board that light reflected off the spheres it entered sort of an inner chamber that these four spheres will make this sits between those four faces and the light bounce reflects around in there and then you can see 
you can see it come out through the open face that's facing you. If you look inside, what makes this interesting is you see a fractal. You see specifically, you'll see patches of the, the colors were red, white, blue, and then black from the extra face. You'll see patches of four of these colors scattered all around inside. And if you look at any, at a boundary between any of the two patches, the red and blue, let's say, you draw a circle around it, no matter how small, inside that circle, you'll see all four colors. No matter how small, at least mathematically, no matter how small you draw the circle. In a physically realized system, there's some limit to how small you can draw it before noise just kind of washes out the effect. But in principle, however small you draw the circle, you always see all four colors. And that's called the water property. So this boundary between the colors is a fractal basin boundary of a specific type called water. We don't need to go into too much exactly what water is. This was the first physical realization of this kind of fractal basin boundary. And that's what made it interesting. Um, it, it arose from computer simulations on similar looking systems. And, and Ed Ott, my advisor, looked at one of the images from the computer simulation and said, you know, we could build this. This would make a really interesting demonstration. And so that, that, that's what we did. But one of the other outcomes was that the picture was a pretty physics picture. So when we submitted the paper, when they published the paper in Nature, they took that figure and made it the cover. One of the outcomes of that was that more people saw this cover and it's people know, know, knew about it and its images spread. And what we found was that uh, people are using this as a demonstration of chaos and fractals in like undergraduate labs. It's a, shows up in textbooks about the subject. And as you alluded to, one day I, I read an article in Make Magazine Online where somebody was showing how to do this with Christmas tree ornaments, which were you know, smaller mirrored spheres, doing almost the same thing. And what I noticed was that the author was Glenn Whitney, who founded and runs the Museum of Mathematics, or MoMath, in Flatiron, and as the right in New York City. And that museum is right near where I live. And I used to take, at the time, I used to take my children there uh, frequently. It was a great place to go play and, you know, whether they realize or not, learn about some mathematics. So it's kind of fun for the whole family. And so I wrote to him and said, I like your article here. If some things you could do, you can make a, a larger display and make these changes, kind of describe what we, we had done in the lab. Um, and this might make a nice exhibit in MoMath. And that's kind of started this conversation that ended with the tetrasphere appearing in a composite, like mathematical art gallery in, in MoMath. Fabulous. That's a great story in how academic concept coming out of lab and then making its way into the real world becomes also inspiration for various generations. You mentioned a little bit about working with, with fractal dimension in a sort of high dimensional setting. So I guess throughout your PhD, you did a couple of work on like fractal dimensions in high dimensional chaotic scattering, you know, various kind of work on that. So maybe can you just quickly go over some of the main research direction that, that you focus on during your PhD? Sure. We could talk about uh, the two papers that came after the Nature paper. One of them was a 50-page paper in Physica D. My advisor said was so abstruse, no one would read it. And uh, so he maybe exaggerated a little bit. I'm sure that there, was, there were some, some readers, at least the reviewers that did. But it was interesting for a couple of reasons. One is because it talked about something called the Kaplan-York conjecture. It was providing some study of one of the assertions of the Kaplan-York conjecture. That's a fascinating statement because it connects the fractal dimension. So now this is chaotic systems. If you represent them in state space, like we talked about with like position, momentum, that kind of thing. And at every point in time, you can record those state variables and plot them as a single point in state space. So as time goes on, you can plot one point for each time step. And you just leave all those points on the page or on the computer screen and you get an image. And those images uh, with chaotic systems tend to be that are fractals. One way to describe a fractal, characterize a fractal is with, you mentioned the fractal dimension. That's a measure of, of the geometry of this image, kind of how full or empty the fractal is. 
Now, that's kind of like a static view of a dynamical system because you see every, all the points on the page at the same time. You can also take a dynamic view and just look at the state at one instant in time and run the equations forward and watch it the next instant, the next instant, the next instant, only look at the current point in time. And you can write down, um, you can measure how sensitive a system is to its initial conditions, in some sense, how chaotic it is. So you have these two views. One is the static view where you see a fractal image. And another is this dynamic view where you see the explosion of these, this divergence of behaviors. The Kaplan-York conjecture connects those two, those two measurements. One on the sensitive dependent side is called the Lappin of exponents, and on the fractal side is called the fractal dimension. It's an equation that equates those two. And what it claims is that it works most of the time in a mathematical sense, almost surely it's true. And so what we set about doing was looking for cases where it wasn't true, <laughs> right? So, so one of the, this is, I think, one of the things you learn when you get training in, in science is the scientific thinking. You've got an idea and what you don't do necessarily is go and look for ways to prove it or affirm it, but rather you look for ways to break it. You look for ways to prove yourself wrong. And so what we did was said, we can set up that we can look for places where it doesn't work. And then we'll perturb those contrived, non-working, rare systems and see if the Kaplan-York conjecture then holds true. And, and it does. So our attempt to break it didn't work. And so that offered some support for the Kaplan-York conjecture. The next paper, this one was, uh, was an odd one. It, it was so it's sort of near and dear to my heart because it was the first work I'd done as a student where I had pitched the idea for the solution. Not, I hadn't defined the problem, but I had pitched the idea for the solution. So it's like a kind of a step up the ladder towards doing independent work. When I first joined the group, we talked about open problems in, in chaos. And one of them was that there was an algorithm in two dimensions that could pick out these fractal sets and draw an image on the screen, a certain, a certain kind of unstable fractal set and draw an image on the screen. But there weren't, it wasn't an algorithm that could do it in higher dimensions. And since we were studying higher dimensional systems, that would be a useful thing to have. Now, I never got assigned to work on that. We never actually spent time on it, but it always sort of stuck in the back of my head. And, and I would come back to it and think about it. And as I learned more about chaos, I'd think about it to you know, do uh, computer experiments run simulations. And um, one day, it finally, all the pieces came together. It finally hit me how you could solve this problem. And it was actually, you know, one of the interesting lessons there was the solution was simple and to, to implement. Finding it was really hard. And I feel like that's a lot of science, a lot of engineering, if you're in industry, winds up being like that. It's not that you're looking for something more sophisticated or more complex or more precise. You're just looking for something that's hard to find. It's a needle, a needle in the haystack, not a, you know, not a better piece of hay. So anyway, I brought that to my, pitched the idea to my advisor, um, Ed Ott, and he, he said, I, you know, you have so much on your plate, just finish something. <laughs> don't, don't add more to it, uh, which is very good advice. Uh, at the time, I didn't take it. And I snuck over to Jim York's office and my other advisor. And I said, uh, I said, I have this idea. I think this is going to work, but I, I, don't, I don't have any time to work on it. And so he taught me another good lesson, which was ask for some help. <laughs> he went out and recruited Helena Nusa, who understands these things, uh, these, this topic really well. And uh, together we worked on the paper on the side. And that, got, that was published in PRL, Physical Review Letters. A couple of interesting points you mentioned in that answer. So like definitely focus on finding the right problem to solve, not just on try to inventing your solution for a problem that does not exist, right? I'm just curious, like, so physics, I suppose, is an empirical science, like right? you need to conduct experiment in order to kind of validate your hypothesis. So what, what is the state of empirical research back in those days? Like, how do you like run experiment? What are some, some of the methods that, that was popular back in those days? Well, I was a theorist and computationalist. So the fact that I did this experiment with the mirrored spheres, that was an anomaly in, in my 
graduate career. I didn't really, I didn't run experiments otherwise. And, you know, given that this is four spheres on top of each other, you can see that the extent of my experimental technique was, it was very limited. <laughs> so I'm so not sure I, I, I'd be the right person to comment on what experimenters were doing at the time. Personally, for me, I didn't follow a lot of academic community within the, the, the physics discipline. Like, how do you see the research community within physics evolve, you know, since back in those early days, like in the past 20 years? Yeah, I've, yeah, I haven't followed chaos, but I have kept in touch with, you know, the folks from that time. What was interesting about this group is it's kind of a large group at the time, and people have ended up in lots of different positions. There's a couple of professors. There's someone doing, but doing government work, a couple of people doing government work. Their experimentalists have gone and done optical communication systems. Another guy I know is doing uh, AI and a few people in finance. And so they really ended up in a lot of places. I think the physics is a good, it's a good background for a lot of things. It's not, um, it doesn't make you an expert in any of those things, but, um, but it does teach you some good generalizable kinds of skills. That's a valid answer. So I believe as a graduate student, you also work on a project called KDE, which is short for K Desktop Environment. So it provides a free user-friendly desktop for Linux and Unix system. And uh, that project eventually led to a print book with Macmillan Publishing in 2000. So yeah, what, what is the story behind this project? The K Desktop Environment, KDE, is a GUI desktop for Linux, open source, kind of like Windows or Mac OS X would be for those operating systems, like the front ends. You know, the menus, the windows, the session management, and some utilities like a, a mail application and a browser, that kind of thing. I worked on the spelling widget, the spell checking widget, sorry, the K spell, and the PDF and PostScript view, the K ghost view. And so what was happening as the KD project started building version 2.0 uh, was lots of new developers were coming into the mailing lists and showing an interest in, you know, participating, but they needed to know how to get set up. They needed to know how to get code from the repo and compile it and that kind of thing. And so I, I noticed that there were these frequently asked questions coming up. So I put together like a how-to about how to go from, you know, from nothing to like, you know, contributing to the project. And that was pretty well received. There, there was an audience for that. And because of that, the step beyond that, um, I got contacted by someone who was writing a book about KDE in general, about how to use it. And they, and they also wanted a chapter about how to um, code for it. So he asked me to write that chapter, just expand the how-to. So I did that and um, to kind of get my feet wet in writing a little bit, get some experience writing. And uh, then I started to think, well, maybe, maybe I could develop this into a whole book, maybe, you know, a book just on development because there's a lot more to say. Uh, so I pitched the idea to Macmillan and they were interested and really supportive. I'll talk about it in a second. Other ways they, in other ways, they, they supported me. One of the things I needed to do was I wanted to get the book out in publication at around the same time, version 2.0 was coming out. The problem was not all of version 2.0 was written yet. So I didn't know how to use it. Nobody knew how to use some of the pieces because they were too new, except the guys who were actually writing them. So what I did was contacted developers, these core developers and said, hey, can you write about the software you're writing? Like what it's going to be when you're done, um, about how to code for it when, it when it's done. And so about half the book was taken up with other KDE developers writing about their specific work. And the first half was me writing more general coding stuff that from version 1.0 and what had been written so far that applied to version 2.0. So it was this group effort of lots of KDE developers. And we got it out the door right in line with version 2.0. And something interesting happened like around that time. Well, I guess maybe we can, we can talk about it, but that was the basic story of the, of the book. Yeah. Perfect. 
Another project that you kind of working on around this at the same time that I found quite interesting. This one is called Andamuka, which is a website that supports open content. Can you just explain how this site works? At this point in the internet's life, open source had been become very popular. At that, the point I was writing this book had become very popular. People started thinking about a specific problem that that was occurring was if you wrote documentation for some open source software and the documentation was closed source. Then the software could evolve. It could even be forked and become something you know radically different, but the documentation will be stuck. And so, if it's, the documentation is closed source, it means you have to write brand new documentation from scratch for the next version, or rely on the person who wrote the original documentation to keep it updated. So it's kind of like a point of failure in the system. So people were discussing open licenses for publication, kind of like open source licenses. So open source documentation, basically. So one of these licenses is called the OPL, the Open Publication License. And I talked to Macmillan about this, and I said maybe we can release the book under this license, you know, as an experiment and see how this goes. And they were on board, so we printed the book and sold it, but also made a PDF freely available that anyone could download and they could modify and redistribute with attribution, just like open source software. And because this was open, it made it possible for me to build a website and publish the book on it that anyone could just come to and read. Right? I didn't need to say no. You have to pay me for the hardcover version. You can just come to the website and read the book. And once you do that, once you have your have it online, you can do things like add comments and have user discussions and just immediate feedback from the user, for the readers, back to the author, and so on. So I built this website using Slash, a content management system, the one that it was the backend for Slash.org, which was a popular technology website back then. It's still around, uh, but back then it was the place to go. They gave away their software as open source. I built Anamook on top of that, and once I had that one book in there. You know, I thought all the startup costs were paid. Adding a second book was, you know, trivial to do. So I, you know, found other authors who were releasing these um, open publication license books, and you know, just add, just kept adding them. But one of the authors that found me was a guy named Jimmy Wales, working on something called Newpedia, <laughs> which was a you know a precursor to, to Wikipedia. So Newpedia was on on Demuka as well before it, you know it turned into uh, to Wikipedia, which is something uh, different and probably heard of as widely successful. So anyway, that's what Demuka was was about. And now, I mean, if you go to the Manning website or, uh, you know, other book publishers' websites, you'll see they have text online and you can read it and comment and post errata and, and talk with the author. And it's, it's just how things work now. But back then it was like a weird, risky thing. You know? It was fun. Oh, I see. Yeah. Very interesting. So like you were early in the movement of open sourcing content and, and having interactive collaboration with, with the readers, right? Yeah. I suppose definitely like that was certainly a, one of those risky things back in the days. Well, the, yeah, the, I mean, the, the concern from the publisher's point of view would be, what if no one buys the book because it's available online? Uh, that was sort of like the open question. And it was like, that was the experiment, basically. Perfect. Kind of going back to your career, after finishing your PhD, you became a quant analyst at Thales Fund Management. What was the rationale behind uh, leaving academia and entering Wall Street? And then uh, what were some of the challenges in your first job? Oh, sure. So I went into industry because I was really interested in building things. I love doing research. I like the novelty. I like the fact that you're, you're producing something, you're pressured basically to produce something that is new, that that's, you don't get published if you don't produce something that's new, that's novel. I find that very satisfying. I haven't you know, lost an interest. I still feel the same way about research, uh, but for reasons I struggle to put into words, I really enjoy the idea of building something, of building something and kind of like winding up and watching it go, like, you know, especially an automated system. It's something, it's just kind of fascinating to me. I wonder sometimes 
after I had kids, I thought, well, maybe this is just a misplaced paternal instinct, the idea of creating something that can, <laughs> that can function on its own. Um, uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's just sort of there deep, in, deep inside me. And so sorry, that, that's what brought me into industry. And, and trading strategies are a nice kind of autonomous uh, vehicle because they don't require you to build things with your hands. Like if you were building a robot or um, these days a self-driving car or something like you just build the software. Software, I, I, I program programming. I can do. So what happens though, when you go into industry after getting a PhD, it's an amazing shift. Up until that point, all of my learning had been um, an incremental progression. Each, each new class, each new year was built upon the previous year. And so I learned more and more things as, as time went on, just like everybody does when they're in school. But then going to industry was suddenly... I was like back in some ways, uh, back to square one. I had no expertise in, in finance or, you know, engineering or, you know, economics, you could say as well. And so, there, and it wasn't because I had skipped steps on this steady progression or fallen backwards. It was like, I just was kicked off to the side. So I went off and left field suddenly. Um, so, so it was, I had underestimated how dramatic that change would be on leaving school. I thought, well, now I'm just going to go and do, I had never seen, I had never experienced a change that, that great before um, because I'd been in school the whole time. It was tough, but it was exciting because it was like this eye opener. like, wow, there's so much, there's so much more to learn and to know and to, and to study. And, and now I have to do it. Well, I don't have to, but, but mostly I'm doing it on the fly and on my own or with my, with my peers, not in a more controlled environment with the classroom. So anyway, uh, that's what it was like to go into industry for me. And one of the things that really struck me now that I was doing engineering was I had, got, I had learned to build, as a scientist, build models, uh, you know, like free parameters and then go study them and say, what if the parameter is this value? What if it's that? What happens? And that's all well and good. And you could do analysis by hand or in simulation. Uh, but when you go to put a strategy on trading strategy online or you, you build anything, you have to tune those parameters to the real world. There's a, a best answer, presumably, or at least there are good answers and you have to find them. <laughs> and I really didn't, I really had no idea how to do this. And this went, that's when I first started learning about experimental methods. And this was, because I was a theorist, I was not an experimentalist. And so I had to really, really dig in and, and discover, for me, discover this, this new kind of, these new techniques. So. I see. Thanks for sharing that journey and that phase of you have to upskill your, your knowledge in order to, to meet the requirement of the industry. In 2004, you moved to Lehman Brothers, and you know, during the time there, you moved up the ladder into a vice president role, all the way up, up until Barclays Capital acquired. Uh, can you share some details about that career phase? Sure. So Lehman Brothers was a very big bank. I, know, I think thirty thousand people worked there globally when I was there. On the floor of the building in Times Square, in New York, where I worked, there were about five hundred people trading. Uh, lots of them on the phone, lots of yelling back and forth, uh, what to buy, what to sell, uh, looking for information, that kind of thing. And um, for me, as, as a quant sitting in front of a computer, it kind of felt like uh, doing my math homework at a football game. You know, like, like being in the bleachers is a fun place to be, but it's not, the, not your most productive environment for, for doing your math. So, so that was, that was a, a change. That was tough to get used to. You know, you get, you, you get used to it, but it's, it's strange at the beginning. So... My progression there was kind of one of shrinking the time scale of what I was trading. When I was at Thales, I worked on a long-term stat-arp system. This positions would be held for like two weeks. And at uh, Lehman Brothers, as I was working on uh, systems where positions were held intraday, you know, for some extended period of time, intraday. And then in the last year I was at Lehman, I worked with a group, like a little, uh, a small, I think it was five, maybe six of us, 
startup group building an HFT system, a high frequency trading system. So there the, the, the holding times are even shorter. Maybe they're a minute or something. This was an interesting project. And, and this is some, something I spent a lot of time on in the future. I still, still work on now, these HFT systems. What was cool about it was it was still, it was kind of new at the time, but it wasn't brand new. The reason, one of the things that inspired us to do it was discovering these companies like Getco and um, Tradebot who were already doing this kind of thing and, and being you know, very successful at it. So while I liked the problem, I didn't love the idea of reinventing it. I knew the problem was to a large extent solved elsewhere. And um, that's kind of what precipitated my transition to Getco, one of, the, one of the leaders at the time in this kind of trading. There I could go and you know, build on something existing, do something a little bit, little bit novel and still be engineering and kind of combine my you know, what I liked about research was that these were things were new. What I liked about engineering is that you know, things, are, things are working and producing some, uh, you know, some effect on the world. Perfect. So let's talk about the next career phase. After Lehman, you spent five years as a head desk in Equities Trader at Getco. And, you know, Getco at the time was, or oh, maybe still is, a very big name, that financial service firm that engaged in various errors from HFT to institutional sales and trading. What was your proudest accomplishment during your time there? Okay. Yeah. So Gecko is an interesting place. Yeah. I can tell you a couple of things. First off, I just want to say that the culture there was, was interesting and that it was transparent and it was, it had the, everybody there kind of combined high performance with like self-deprecation or maybe even self-flagellation. Like there was just this relentless need to make things even better, to kind of look around and say, ah, we could do better than this. And so because there was that kind of attitude and there was this transparency, you could see what was going on. You couldn't, no one would be wasting their time building something that had already been built. And I thought that was a great cultural lesson. That's not, interestingly, what banks are typically like. They'll have competing groups doing the same thing, be siloed and protected. So anyway, and hunting around for ways to do new things, I found that people were working on, you know, we were running lots and lots and lots of trading strategies. And one of the challenges was what, what can we get more efficiency if we start to combine two different trading strategies or three different trading strategies and people, I, I talked to the traders who were already there and they described the problems they were having and so I set about trying to you know, trying to solve these problems and worked first with you know a couple of strategies and then was able to scale to more and more until I had a you know a control system that could listen to and send out hints to like, thousands of these strategies you know running in a, in a market. That involves some convex optimization and some good old-fashioned calculus done by hand to make it work, but it was fairly robust and reliable. I can't talk too much in detail about what it did, but we used it for, we did use it for equities, for ETFR in the US, and we used you know, fixed income and used it for, for equities in Tokyo and for London separately. So it, you know, it kind of got scaled out throughout the firm. But, but, you know, that's where I was pleased to have thought that one Perfect. Yeah. Thanks for uh, emphasizing on some of those technical challenges and the scale of those uh, techniques. So after Getco for the next five years, you work at an investment firm called Tesla Technologies, and then you also co-founded Galaxy Digital Trading, which specialize in cryptocurrency trading. So maybe you can just briefly walk through these two characteristics. Sure. At Tesla, I worked on a couple of things, but I'll talk about um, work on execution algorithms for a Statarb PM. So the Statar began with these longer-term strategies. Execution happens on the high-frequency time scale. Right, so execution algorithm takes commands from a longer-term, uh, from a strategy with a longer-term view to say, it says, you know, execute right now or execute in the near future. 
Um, so it looks more like an HFT problem. Now, at the time we were short staffed for this project and in interviewing people to hire to work on A-B testing. So A-B testing is commonly used in, in execution because you really need to understand at those short time scales you impact the market, you need to understand what, what impact you're having, uh, what that does to the costs of execution. So while interviewing people, I was also looking for ways to get this thing up and running and be somewhat more automated and efficient. And what I ended up with, you know, just through reading papers and seeing kind of what other people were, were doing about kinds of problems with something called the contextual bandit, which kind of has three parts. There's some, you know, modeling of, uh, let's say the costs in this case, could, you know, continuously refitting, also doing some exploration, looking around, tr trying different kinds of trades in con under conditions you hadn't seen before. Uh, which was very important in this case because I was starting from a um, from tables that were written by hand um, that hard coded to say trade this symbol this way at this time this symbol this way at this time and if you change the symbol or the time or the way you had no data at all so you have to do, run some experimentation some exploration to find that other data and this process of uh, debiasing so if you go out and you trade so it points a little bit more subtle, but if you, if you go and trade with a controller or the bandit or the quote unquote policy that decides where these orders are going to go, in our case, it's which router, which, uh, sorry, which broker these orders are going to go to, uh, it biases your data towards only what that policy can see. And so when you go to refit your model overnight, you need to subtract out that bias and there's some of the techniques to do that. So anyway, that's contextual management. So it was nice. That worked really well. It was nice about it. It ran fairly autonomously. And so then I could work on improving our own other pieces of our execution ability and rely on this, this contextual bandit to then evaluate my work and compare it to what we're doing with the brokers. I see. That was your work at Tezza, right? Yes, that was at Tezza. Um, now, uh, unfortunately, that, that our group got shut down. <laughs> and when I was looking for something new to do, I uh, came across a, a, you know, a friend of a a friend of a friend kind of a thing with these two traders and entrepreneurs who worked together uh, running a trading shop. And one of their investors is a guy named uh, Mike Novakrat. I don't know if people in finance might know him as uh, one of the founders of uh, the first public hedge fund called Fortress. First uh, public in the sense of like public company, like IPOs. So he had taken an interest in cryptocurrencies and she was looking to fund some people to trade them. And I had been interested in crypto and trading by hand. And, and nobody I had met in finance up till then really took cryptocurrencies seriously. And so I was very surprised to hear that there was somebody in traditional trading looking to fund cryptocurrency trading. I was like, I, I would love to do that. <laughs> and so we just, you know, we just kept talking and eventually for the three of us formed a company called Bedford Avenue Trading. And we started trading live in like November of 2017 when cryptocurrencies were just getting absolutely crazy. For a few months, they were insane. They cooled down a little bit after that, but they didn't get any less interesting and they're, they're kind of wild now too. But anyway, so there was a, a few months of just sleepless nights and you know, kind of getting the system, building the system as we're trading and repairing and improving. It was, it was a wild ride and you know, one of the greatest like professional experiences in my life. It's, it's, it's awesome um, starting, starting something like that. Now, Mike Novogratz was also funding other cryptocurrency-related ventures at the time. And what each of these businesses looked like is they kind of looked like departments in an investment bank. And so he said, well, you know what? I want to take all of these and form a single company. So our Bedford Avenue Trading was rebranded Galaxy Digital Trading because the Galaxy is sort of the, uh, um, the brand name of all the things the, Novo, the Novogratz family office did. And um, so each of these businesses were Galaxy Digital something or other. 
And then eventually they were all kind of swept together or hired, I don't know how you'd want to call it, into Galaxy Digital Holdings, which then went public and, you know, is still functioning. So the, uh, the three, three partners, one of my partners left early to go back and run, you know, the old business, the traditional business they were running. I stayed for about six months to kind of integrate the team I had built and the, the software we had built, which was now running, you know, prop trading. And I was running execution for the OTC desk and execution also for the index funds they had in a macro desk. So really it's kind of like running a lot of the, you know, all the automated portions of the trading. And uh, to get that all integrated and mature and stable, you know, and then I, I started thinking, well, what, what do I want to do next? It's kind of the startup, the startup portion of this, <laughs> of this company is over. And so what, what happens next? So, but for me, I, I'd say that the experience, like beyond, you know, just the, the idea of being an entrepreneur and creating something of your own, but also the, doing it in the crypto community at, the, at that time, especially, I don't know, maybe crypto is similar now, but doing it in the crypto community was awesome. Cause it's just this, a bunch of really passionate, really optimistic people. And so you couldn't go, no, not a day went by where you weren't sort of inspired to just want to, you know, want to be doing what you're doing. So it's pretty, it's pretty nice along the way. So. Thanks for being very concise and sharing those war stories um, along those years of creating that company. I believe that throughout this whole period, you um, have also given a couple of uh, guest lectures on optimization of high frequency trading systems at uh, the NYU Stone School of Business. So yeah, would you mind maybe uh, unpacking some of the key concepts covered in those lectures? Sure. So these are lectures given um, like a once a year for a few years in Vasant Dar's trading strategies and systems class. And so, so the idea was to teach about experimental methods or experimental optimization methods really that are used in quantitative trading. And one of the, th the points uh, that I, I liked to make was to talk about the difference, the, the pros and cons of simulation and experiment and how um, you can't run you can't rely just on simulations and you can't rely just on experiments, but they work really well together. So experiments, the great thing about taking experimental measurements is that you're looking at the real system in the real world. Your data is unbiased because it is, it's the realest data you can have. The drawback is that data collection can be slow, can be expensive, it can be risky. If you want to try new things, then you don't know how they're going to behave. You know, you put your dollars at, uh, at greater risk when you go to trade. Now, Simulation, on the other hand, is very precise um, because you can run over lots of historical data. For example, you can try lots of different configurations, parameter values, that kind of thing, uh, very cheaply, right? Because the computers are, are doing the work and they're not, real money is not at risk. Uh, the drawback is simulation bias. Basically, you don't, what happens in your simulation isn't what really would have happened. And you don't, there's no way to really, or to know for sure, because you can't roll back time and try it differently in real life and compare. Your simulation is a model and any model has some model bias. So, but they do work well together. You get precision from your simulations and accuracy from your experiments. And I think that's where you, you wanna be when you're building, uh, not just trading systems, but anything with simulation involved. That's kind of the introduction, but the most of the talk was about different methods used for experimental optimization. Like A-B testing is kind of like the, the base method for all of this, it's the gold standard of, of experimentation. What I did was talked about um, other methods, methods like a multi-arm bandits, response surface methodology, contextual bandits, Bayesian optimization, but all as building on top of each other step-by-step step and showing how if you um, specialize to a certain type of system, you can get some extra efficiency over an A-B test. Or if you, you know, slightly change the, the way you want to look at the problem, you can get some more efficiency. Or if you even just iterate, you know, do, do one experiment after another after another, 
but keep track of what you've done so far. Uh, rather than running independent experiments that don't know about each other, you can get some metrics. All those things come into play as you look into the more sophisticated methods. And the book that I'm working on for Manning follows basically the same structure. It was, a, it was a, like an expansion of my lecture notes. Absolutely. Yeah, we we'll we'll touch back on the books a bit later on in, in our chat. In the summer of 2019, you um, accepted a machine learning engineer role at Instagram. At that point, like, what, what sparked this career change? And uh, what were some of the projects that you contributed to? So this is something that had been kind of brewing for a while, that what I had been seeing is this kind of a growing gap in the kind of machine learning or AI techniques that I was seeing used in finance and that were being used at technology companies, right? So the technology companies like Google and Facebook and Uber, Apple, as these technologies became you know, more and more gigantic, uh, they were able to open basic research labs, sort of just start basic research labs within their companies and produce you know, cutting edge cutting edge algorithms and ideas and whatnot and push them to their applied side. And I just didn't see that, see finance companies having that. And I was wondering, you know, is it, am I not seeing these other techniques in finance because they, they aren't necessarily applicable? Sometimes it seems like that might be the case, but I have, you know, I had some, some, you know, I had success with the contextual bandit. And so I thought, well, what I wanted to do, what I was doing was I was learning by reading papers and I was learning by, you know, running little side projects on my own to get an understanding. But if, if you've ever done, taken a math class, I'm sure you have, you know, you read the chapter and you think you understand, but then you go to do your first homework problem and you say, well, maybe I didn't understand, right? There's, there's something, there's something about doing it that um, increases your, your understanding of whatever the, the topic is. And so I, what I wanted was to go to one of these places and really use the AI or ML techniques I was learning about in practice and see what was going on and get build confidence in my understanding uh, and my ability to predict whether they would be useful in any given context. So at Instagram, I worked on feed and stories. So this, if you use the Instagram app, there's a stream of pictures that you get to see that's the feed. And then at the top, there are the circles, the stories. So the temporary short videos that appear. The system that my team worked on was the recommender system. So deciding which images were stories to show you and what the ranking was, which to show first, second, third. A couple of really nice things happened there was one is I just got to work with deep neural networks and, and RNN and counterfactual policy estimation and Bayesian optimization. But beyond that, beyond just, just applying it, something I hadn't anticipated going in, I hadn't thought of going in was with such a large company and so many experts in these different algorithms and topics available. I could really ask deep questions of sometimes, you know, a person who had written a paper that I had read was working at the, at the company and I could just hit them up on, you know, the internal version of, of Slack, the work, work chat, I just hit them up work chat and say, Hey, can, can I talk about this? And they, and they would maybe we're friendly and open. So I got to learn about these things in a way that I hadn't anticipated. And I don't think you could get really anywhere else. <laughs> um, so it was, it was a nice experience. Absolutely. Um, yeah. For sharing the story. So since September 2020, you have uh, transitioned back to a quant trader role at Three Red Partners. How was your experience there this far? It's been really good. I feel like they've got a small company. They've got some great ideas and desires to do engineering things that really resonate with me. You know, like a lot of finance companies, it's, it's fairly secretive. So I, I, you know, I can't, I can't go into too much detail, just go into, into specifics about anything, but I can say that they've got an engineering philosophy that, uh, that makes a lot of sense to me and enjoying being part of that. Absolutely. As we, you know, touch base throughout the conversation, but at the moment you are writing a technical book with Manning called Tuning Up. 
And the book provides a toolbox of experimental methods that will boost the effectiveness of ML system trading strategy, infrastructure, and more. And this is like essentially an extension of some of the trade notes that you gave at NYU Stern. What have been the challenges you encounter during the writing process thus far? Ah, uh, okay. So, yeah, a cu- couple of things have come up. One is part of the research for the book has been to interview colleagues and friends of friends from from other companies in finance and in technology. So I've talked to people like HFT shops and Google and other places, maybe they're not, not as uh, not as well known. But the point is, what I find is that people sometimes don't want to talk at all, or they'll talk, but they don't want to be named. Um, they're a little, they're a little afraid because this problem, this question of, uh, you know, what's proprietary and what's not, and they don't want to accidentally say something that is. And so it's, it's got me thinking, I've always, I've always thought, you know, given my background in open source software and this open publication list, I've always thought, you know, openness is a, is a good thing. It's certainly like the scientific way is to you know, you share all your information and everybody can build on everything else. And there's no uh, less wasted time uh, sort of reinventing the wheel. Right. And I wonder, you know, if industry is at the, has the right level of transparency, you know, like when I see like papers coming out of like fair at Facebook, I feel like, yeah, that, that's great transparency, you know, <laughs> oh, that resonates well with me. But when I see people afraid to talk, I wonder, well, if maybe, you know, it's more than, there's more to it than just maybe some inefficiency due to the, the lack of transparency, but maybe there's a, a toll taken on people. If you, if you walk up to someone and you say, hey, you've had this career of 10 years, tell me about it. And they say, sorry, I can't. You know, does that hurt? You know, I, I mean, it, it does for me when I can't talk. Like I said, like I feel, I feel that when I, when I can't talk. And I don't know if everybody feels the same way as me, but maybe, you know, maybe there's some, with some more thought there's, we could do better as a society, so to speak. So that's, that's, that's one of the things that's come up. Another thing that has just been the pandemic has uh, sort of came like, uh, uh, you know, out of the blue a few months into to writing the book, you know, things have stabilized, but for a while there, there was just, you know, you know, everything was changing and it was hard to just sort of sit down and, and write the book and hard to, hard to focus on it, you know, with so much else to think about. But otherwise, I'd say like Manning's been super supportive. You know, Andrew Walton, who, who brought me in and Catherine Olstein, they're both so supportive kind of in a, in a professional, emotional way, but also good, good teachers. Catherine's a great editor and she's just relentless in the kindest, most helpful way. <laughs> when do you expect it to finish it? Um, we're thinking it'll, be, it'll come out uh, end of the summer in 2021. All right. Yeah. And I'll be sure to put that in the show notes. So uh, anyone interested in it can uh, make a pre-order with the book and, you know, learn some of these very well-known optimization techniques that David introduced in it in his book. Now, reflecting on your career thus far, how do you think that your academic background in physics contribute to your career as a quantum analyst? That's an interesting question. Some of the basic skills like math and programming and modeling and simulation, they, they certainly help with engineering. But I didn't have any, any finance or really engineering backgrounds. So a lot of the specifics were missing. But I, what I can say has been super helpful. And I might not have gotten, had I only studied more specific topics, was this scientific thinking. You study physics, other sciences. What you learn to do is to make a claim and to go out of your way to figure out, to find ways to refute it. Right? You want to break your own ideas, try hard to, and, you know, and whatever survives, you have some confidence in. You never say, this is right, I'm done. I, I know this is true, but you build up confidence by trying to break things. And it's really like, it's the only effective way. It's hard, it's hard to do in the sense that I don't think it comes 
naturally or intuitively to people and you know, to human beings, right? I don't think that's, that's not the way humans operate, right? If you're, um, you know, bears chasing you in the woods, you don't stop and say, well, I hypothesize that that's a bear. Let me test that hypothesis. No, you just run away, right? And even if you're wrong, it's okay, you know? <laughs> but when you, uh, you know, but when you're doing these other kinds of, you have these other kinds of endeavors like in business and engineering and science, it's really helpful. It can be really helpful to kind of take your time and get rid of the wrong stuff. So um, I think that and this bias towards simplicity uh, comes razor, uh, which gets kind of hammered into you over and over again throughout a science, like academic um, or, you know, studentship is super useful in uh, industry. Focusing on that scientific thinking and biased over simplicity. That's great advice. So yeah, David, at this point of our conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you two rapid fire questions and you can, you know, give uh, quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the quantitative trading universe whose work you admire. Okay. Let's see. I'm going to say Jim Simons of Renaissance, just because he's sort of like the master of quantitative finance uh, in, a, in a lot of ways. He, Renaissance is just the most amazing firm. He's also the Simons and the Chern-Simons theorem, which, which is a great piece of uh, mathematical research that's used in physics, mathematical theorem that's used in physics, and um, funder of Math for America, which does math education. These are sort of the, the themes. And, and my other two, uh, I'd say Michael Kearns, who a professor at UPenn, has did, you know, just done great work in machine learning and reinforcement learning. I uh, was now at Morgan Stanley. I overlapped with him at Lehman Brothers. He was um, there and he would give weekly uh, symposia where we'd all discuss, or read or discuss papers. It was really, that was really nice. And Vasant Dar, he is the gentleman, the professor who brought me in his class to give his lectures. He, he's a professor at NYU, um, but he also runs his own hedge fund or something like a hedge fund called SCT Capital, CTA, I believe. And so what all these quants have in common is that they've contributed to society by research, education, but also have this entrepreneurial engineering kind of bent. And so I find that very inspiring because I, I, all those things interesting, interest me, but also it's nice to see that it's possible that you don't have to choose, um, that you can, you can make contributions in different ways um, throughout your career. And that's, you know, uh, not off limits. So. Yeah, I think that's an excellent insight. Second question, uh, name one book that you could recommend for people to develop a better quantitative mindset. One of my favorites is, is Hasty and Tib Sharani. I think it's called Statistical Learning. I think I usually refer to it as Hasty and Tib Sharani. So this is a book about machine learning, which focuses largely, not, not exclusively, but largely on linear models. And I think that's a great way to learn not only the linear modeling, but um, the basic ideas involved in, in how you do modeling. Like they'll apply if you want to go later on and learn deep neural networks and more complicated methods, right? with non-convexity and, and um, non-linearity and whatnot. But this stuff is really foundational. And no matter what happens in the future in terms of modeling methods, this stuff will still apply. I think it's a great book. The best of simplicity, right? Um, and then lastly, um, imagine that you can send out a brief message to all the aspiring quant traders on LinkedIn. What could you say? <laughs> oh, um, I would say measure early and measure often. Right, getting the real data is is going to help you more than any uh, more than anything. Else. Fabulous, David. I think that's a, a great way to end our conversation. I really enjoy, you know, going through your whole academic background, doing research in physics in chaos theory to, you know, some of your projects on an open source publishing, and uh, your career as a quant analyst going through various trading firms, your experience at Instagram, 
and right now writing a book about experimental methods that sort of intersects between both finance and technology. I'll be sure to include other links and resources into the show notes so listeners can have a chance to you know, explore and, and check out some of this great work that you have been putting on and show if they're interested. So yeah, David, really enjoy our conversation and I hope you have a great rest of your day. This was a great time. Thanks so much. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.